The uh, scripture reading for today uh, comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. I'll be reading from the NIV. So again, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 16. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor, labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Good morning. We start this month's series on spiritual disciplines, and I noticed already that uh, in our songs we've sung about waiting on the Lord, which is sort of counterintuitive in our culture. Nobody likes to wait for anything anymore, and so we, but we were called to, to we sang about waiting on the Lord. We sang about godliness, and this passage certainly is strong in talking about that. But the reality is that we're human. So I'm going to tell you a story. It's not very flattering. I, if I've told you or heard, if you've heard this story before, I apologize, but I'm, you know, I'm getting older. I can't remember as well. So. But um, I know that you've all heard the phrase, what were you thinking when we've done certain things, right? Well, I was young, uh, and I have been uh, called a pyromaniac before. This story will not enable me to get away from that label. But I was probably about eight, nine years old, and I had been, I'd had a paper route, and I had collected Kennedy halves. And I had this collection of Kennedy halves, and some of them were really kind of dirty, or, you know, I wanted to clean them up, right? So I decided that I would clean them with gasoline. Um, now, there would be the first point that you may want to just all say together, what were you thinking? So not only that, I'm sitting there on the kitchen counter on the beautiful countertop, cleaning this with gasoline, 
And the thought occurs to me, which is why, parenthetically, why we're called to, to really train our thoughts on the Lord. But the thought occurred to me, I wonder if all the gasoline has dried off. And I wonder what would happen if I held a match up to where the, I had been cleaning the coins. And this would be the second opportunity for you to say, what were you thinking? Uh, so immediately there was a very large bunch of flames shooting up from the countertop. And it was very close to a stack of envelopes that my mom had placed there. And they're lighting on, they were, they started to light on fire. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out how to deal with this. So of course, I run over and get a glass of water and go to pour the water onto the gasoline. And this would be the third point at which you would say, what were you thinking? I was obviously not very gifted in thinking at that point in my life and in that situation. And of course, finally, finally I came to my senses and started yelling for mom. <laughs> and she came and grabbed a towel and, and put it out fairly easily, but it was, it was kind of scary to me. I had visions of, <clears throat> I started a house fire and why was it that you, how did this start? It was like, what if somebody actually asks, how did the house fire start? You know, I was like, well, I wasn't thinking. Um, Paul is very interesting in writing about thinking. Um, and it's not, we'll see as we go through the scripture in a bit here, that it's not always real clear um, he, he actually talks about thinking in a couple of ways. But um, overall, um, George Barna did, has done multiple surveys and continues to keep a pulse on the, on the nation. And he basically said that, um, that his sur latest surveys reveal that we are a nation that is comfortable with religion but not particularly committed to spiritual growth. So when we talk about discipline, spiritual discipline, the whole point of spiritual discipline is to grow in our faith and grow in our understanding. And so if we want to grow, we have to address this question of what does it mean to be spiritually disciplined? But there are some things that we don't get to because there are other things that interrupt that sense of discipline, that sense of focus. Um, in the outline for this month that was in your boxes, um, it says, Paul encouraged Timothy in similar terms as coaches who work with athletes. Train yourself to be godly. Physical training is of some value, and this is from our, our passage today, um, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the one to come. So one of the other purposes of training spiritually is not just for how we live this life, but it's also training spiritually to prepare for the next 
life that we have eternally with God. And so this passage that Paul is writing to is coaching Timothy. And later in the passage, he said, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Uh, Don't let that be a hindrance. People will throw that at you. Essentially, he's preparing Timothy to know that somebody's going to blame you for this or blame you for that. Or say, you're, you're, you, what, what do you know? You haven't had life experiences. Some of our young people might uh, be able to, to attest to that experience. Well, you're just too young to really know any better. When you get a little older, then you'll understand. And, um, and we, we adults should know by now that every time we claim to understand, we usually... Uh, end up having to be corrected even ourselves. But in any case, uh, the thing that Barna identifies, he says, most people who are aligned with a Christian church really make a rather minimal investment in religious activity. Most people describe themselves as religious, describe their faith uh, as being very important in their daily life, but make only a half-hearted effort to truly master the foundations of their faith and to live a life that is determined by that faith. He says, in a typical week, 41% of all adults attending Christian churches are not born again. In other words, not considered to have been truly converted to the discipleship of Christ. Most of these people have been attending for years without really understanding the foundations of the faith. He suggests that the nation seems to be mired and the nation's church community is mired in what he calls spiritual complacency. And that's the challenge facing the church today. So let me point to a few things that add to this spiritual complacency that add to and and keep reinforcing uh, a a lack of direction, a lack of urgency, a a lack of significance in our faith walk. Um, The first one, I will say, um, that we practice defining things by what's wrong with it. Now, some would say it's just as simple as this. Well, you, you just always see the glass half empty. Well, there's, there's some degree of that, but it's more than just that. It's more than, than it's, it's basically saying, well, it's never quite good enough. It's never quite adequate. And a lot of Christians give up on their faith because I'll never measure up to what God's standard is. And so you have people that are consistently just giving up or saying, well, you know, it is what it is. One of the most hated phrases, in the, the, for me anyway, is, no, it isn't just what it is. Sometimes it's that way because I'm not doing anything about it. And that's almost a, a statement of resignation to saying, well, okay, I guess I'll just have to sort of live with the fact that all of life is bad and everything will keep happening bad. When we define things and life and our events and the relationships by what's wrong with them, 
we will never attain to an appreciation even for the grace of Jesus Christ. Because no matter how much grace there is, I'm still, I keep making mistakes, so I'm a lost cause. And that whole mentality is not only consistently defeating, it's discouraging and it makes people give up and say, well, the church is just a bunch of perfectionists that try to make everybody else be perfect when in fact they are broken just as much as anybody else, which is all true. But it's a reason for becoming more complacent and giving up on spiritual growth, much less spiritual discipline. Secondly, to make the joy of the Lord dependent on things going our way. Now, you understand, the joy of the Lord is our strength, is what scripture says. But it's not really a strength when that joy is only contingent upon everything going the way I want it to go. I mean, there have been many, many uh, times that we engage in some activity. Could be a, a, a competition, a game of some kind. Could be a board game, a card game, whatever. And suddenly I have my strategy all laid out and I play my cards and I make a move or whatever and it doesn't work out. Um, and it didn't go our way. Oh, there goes the joy of the Lord. And I'm just going to give you a teeny little preview. I'm going to close this sermon with a story that directly challenges that negative principle. Third, to value our faithfulness and obedience for the rewards. That's, again, uh, uh, an absolute faith killer, uh, spiritual discipline stopper. When, in fact, we basically will say that faithfulness, obedience, better bring some rewards or what's the point of it? And we can't wait for heaven, so we need to see it now, here and now. It'd be like an investment saying, look, in two weeks... You know, I, I gave a financial person the, this money, and in two weeks, it's not grown at all. In fact, the little bar graph or the, the little line graph actually is going down in value after two weeks' time. If we don't see it benefiting us here and now, then what was the purpose of my faithfulness and obedience? Now, I don't have time, but Scripture is filled with words challenging that mentality. That mentality never got much success with the children of Israel and nor with even the disciples. Fourth, to stand against anything that takes away our control. If that's the position that you're in where you, if, if, it, if it leaves me with less control of my situation and my in my surroundings, and my circumstances, if that leaves me less, then, um, then I have to be against it. So whatever's going to take away my rights, my demands, my desires, my wants, all of that, if I'm going to stand against that, um, then we're going to have a very hard time with any spiritual growth because, in fact, that's exactly what Christ was 
most exemplary in was his desire to, to serve God and be faithful to the Father at all costs. And so that it wasn't dependent upon him being in control. He could have controlled, he could have avoided the crucifixion. He could have struck down anybody that was against him. But he chose not to for the sake of allowing God the Father to be in control. And to trust God for that. Fifth one. To invest in relationships only with those who agree with us. This is also a faith killer and goes absolutely contradictory to spiritual discipline. We're only going to relate to people we like or that agree with us. And if that's a mentality that we have, we will not grow. Finally, to allow the secular and unaccountable, and I chose that word specifically, unaccountable information uh, sources to shape our thinking more than scripture. There are times that we will read a news source or some, something somebody put on Facebook or, or texted and, and we will react to it as if that is proverbially what we talk about as God's truth. Well, it's really not God's. Let's not blame God for a truth that humans come up with. But the point of this is, if we're going to live life, and if we're going to grow spiritually at all, we have to, we have to measure everything, test everything, according to what the Word says and what we have heard and worked with in prayer with God directly. And the counsel of God's people around us and hearing that. And so whenever we basically uh, take our own information of what we want to hear, and that's why I said secular, unaccountable, and that forms our opinion spiritually, that's not going to go well. And it's not going to line up and it's not going to be uh, helping us grow in our faith at all. Um, Jason Cross, in a message that he preached on spiritual complacency, um, this was found on gracechurch.org. He says, what is complacency? A feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievement. Spiritually, it's coming to a point where you become overconfident with where you are in God and his provisions and believe you are no longer responsible for participating in intentional growth towards God's mission and his agenda on earth. The truth is that the fruit of complacency is consumption. And I love that line. Is, that is the most excellent line that describes so much of our culture. The fruit of complacency is consumption. We want to consume more and more, and it's not enough. And we want to have more and more success, and it's not enough. And sometimes God is hanging the answer right in front of us, and we don't want to hear that answer. And so in all of these six things that I outlined, they're basically ways that we turn and we twist God 
into our image. Philippians 4.9. Well, let me back up and say, um, how, what does Jesus say about our thoughts? And how do we change our mind? Because that is such a central theme to Jesus' message. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount was, was absolutely groundbreaking. Jesus' first public sermon. And in that sermon, he kept talking about, and he kept using these phrases, you have heard it said, but I tell you, and that was multiple times throughout Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And, and in those, he's, it's mind-boggling because everybody says, well, we know how, we know all about that. You've heard it said because you've rehearsed it, you've, you've read it, you've talked with people that agree with you, you've done all of those six things, engaged in all of those so you can shape your bubble around. You have heard it said, Jesus says, but I, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, tell you this, it's different. You have heard, he says, but I tell you, blessed are the, the unexpected. The, the Beatitudes is really confounding. We would think, oh, these people are blessed. No, no. Jesus ends up saying the unexpected people, the, those that we wouldn't think as being blessed, are the ones that are blessed. He also says phrases throughout the Sermon on the Mount, think not but I tell you. Now that's, that's getting at the heart of this. Think not what you want to think. I'm, listen to what I'm telling you and let what Jesus says shape our thoughts and our minds around him. And he multiple times also says, therefore, I tell you, therefore, in light of what he's saying, I tell you this. It's very different. Philippians 4.9 has some final, it's listed as final exhortations for the Philippian church. And Paul there says, and again, you start to see these themes emerge for Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, that is just curious to me, isn't it? You're saying you're, you're summarizing your whole letter and the first thing you say is let your gentleness be evident to all. That is not, does not go well in our culture, people. It does not sell. We're called to be in control. We're called to take command. We're called to take over. We're called to, to, to get back what we want and how we want it and when we want it. Be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, even ours, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, he concludes, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, 
if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. For whatever you learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So here you have this flow. And in the discipleship class that we're, we're engaging in on Wednesday evenings, we're moving into this process uh, where this particular, uh, this particular movement, and, and point, let me point out, what I'm going to tell you here is actually different, slightly different from what Paul is saying to Timothy. But look, we'll get to that. But uh, in, this, in this discipleship series, it basically says there are three things. Head, heart, hands. I want to get a t-shirt with head, heart, hands on it. I think it's just a great cycle. The head part is basically saying it's a choice to follow Christ. Not just to acknowledge Christ, but to follow Christ is a choice that only happens with the process of your mind making that decision and choosing and then that's not enough. A, a lot of people can be converted to the faith and decide to become a follower of Christ, decide to be a Christian, but never. But 20 years later, they're the same person they were before. And their faith is about the same level that it was when they started. Because it's with your heart that you allow Christ to transform. And we've talked about that when you see three, three years of sitting around the campfire and, and three years of constantly teaching the disciples, reminding them, putting up with their failures, putting up with their questions, putting up with the fact that they're just not getting it up here or in here. And finally, after we see that process, Jesus starts to make some real headway in the preparation there is a transformation process that has to follow up with it. And so if, as a discipling church, if we want to be a discipling church, we need to move not only with the decision with the head, but the, the passion of the heart to be transformed into Christ's likeness. Because uh, following Christ is not just about a decision in my head. It's actually one that moves into my heart and I keep getting transformed by the things that are still and constantly being challenged by a sinful world. And so, uh, you know, we talk about the, the things of the flesh, the, the ways that we, we try and shape God around us. It's with the transformation of my heart that I keep growing and growing into the likeness of Christ. And then finally... The hands part of discipleship is basically saying that if I want to be truly embrace it, there's no way that I can decide with my head to follow Christ, no way that I can be transformed into Christ's likeness without doing the mission of Christ. And that's the part that is the showstopper for so many. Well, but I could never do that. I mean, Timothy it wrote back to Paul and said, Hey, look, it's all good. I'm there. I'm with you 100%. But man, I cannot do this. I can't speak. I can't teach. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at that. Just, just give me pastoral care. Just l let me just walk with somebody. And, and, and Timothy didn't. 
But Paul's challenge was now put it into practice. Live it out. Make joy complete by modeling your life afterwards. So let's go back and take a look at this passage uh, just briefly. I want to I want us to look at the passage that was read and point out to and point us to some action steps. But the first thing is that Paul is saying to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Now there are many, many forms of that, uh, and we'll talk about a few of those. But he says, you know, physical training is of some value. So yeah, keep running, keep uh, keep doing your calisthenics. That's a term that probably is hardly ever used anymore. Uh, keep doing your exercises. Keep going to the gym. Yeah, that's okay. But if it's disconnected, and if you're not putting the same effort into spiritual growth, you're not going to be a very good spiritual athlete. You're not going to have a very strong faith until you actually work out the spiritual exercises that are needed. Uh, and then he goes on in, in verse 8, um, or, or I mean in verse, verse 9, he says, This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. What he has just said about discipline and what he's just said about training uh, in godliness is a trustworthy saying. In verse 10, that's why we labor and strive. We put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. He goes on to say, uh, command and teach these things. Now we get into some real specifics. Don't look down, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example. Now here's, here's what's interesting. He says, set an example in speech, in how you talk. Set an example in your conduct. And then he lists in faith and in purity. It is interesting because, because he's actually calling for behavior, spiritual behavior, an example that, that Timothy should be making for other people. Let me just tell you, somebody's watching. I don't care. Uh, I will just say, so this week I did something that I have held off on for a long time. I actually, no, please promise me this. I'll tell you if you don't try and contact me. I signed up for Facebook. <laughs> what have I done? Um, now, I also had my balloon burst by the fact that I'm told by some younger people that I may know that Facebook is pretty much out. And it's less popular. It's really not the avenue. And so I waited until it was finally out and then I signed up for it. Now, I don't even know anything about Facebook. But I was basically finding out that if I have a Facebook account, I can more easily get onto the church's Facebook 
to be able to check church Facebook things. Now, that's neither here nor there. The bottom line was this, that I end up trying, you know, having to do this. And, and this is the thing that I have most said no to with it is, people will say all kinds of things on Facebook as if they aren't accountable for it. And do not set as good of an example and they can because you're not face to face I don't actually have to face someone to be able to say this kind of a thing to them and uh, that whole point of it is dehumanizing stepping away from it acting as if my example and my conduct don't have any impact on people and they do people are watching people are watching I know this has been many years ago but I I've, I know I've used this before, but I will, it left a mark on me as a young kid when I watched a commercial where a dad is washing his car and just puffing away on his cigarette and puffing away on it. And then they panned over to his son who's sitting under a tree. And his son looks over and picks up his dad's pack of cigarettes and is looking at it. Set an example. Paul's saying, it does make a difference how we act, how we conduct ourselves. So what's interesting about this is that Paul is basically noticing that not only is it, because in Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so then the conduct will flow out of that. But Paul's also saying, hey, be transformed in your behavior. Change your behavior. And the more that you practice something, um, if you waited, let, let's give you a more graphic example. If you waited until every kid was actually understood the, the mechanical process of walking before they took steps, they would never walk. You have them walk. You act in the way that is godly. You act in the way that is spiritually coached and taught in Scripture. You act in that way until it growingly starts to transform. So this transformation goes both ways. Head, heart, hands. Hands, heart, head. Both ways, back and forth. It's a reflexive. And Paul talks about this. That we find our consistency and we find our discipline uh, in both directions. And then he goes on to say, so an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In each of these ways, we end up demonstrating what Christ was about. And he says, until I come, devote yourselves. Devote yourselves. That word should be underlined. Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Now, not all of your teachers, not all of your preachers. His point is to Timothy specific, but the point is to all of us. Practice what you can do. Do engage in what you are gifted in. And we're all gifted with the ability to show someone by our behavior, even if you never say a word. So we see this... this uh, clarity of Paul's pattern because in verse 15 and 16 
Listen to these words. I have them highlighted and circled. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself what? Holy to them so that everyone can see your progress. Verse 16, watch your life and your doctrine, doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your ears. So this decision has to do with with the, the process of becoming transformed like Christ. So how do we train ourselves in righteousness? Um, let me just say, in this outline he gave, follow that five-fold example. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Purity, keeping our hearts keeping our thoughts and our feelings and our actions pure by self-discipline and guidance from others. And devote yourselves to the gifts that you can do. Worship, instruction, prayer. Connecting with the fellowship of other believers, which we tend to call church. Don't invite people to church. Invite people to discipleship. Invite people to a journey of training in righteousness. Uh, in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul gives this final charge to him. But you, man of God, and by the way, in no other place in the New Testament is someone referred to as a man of God. So never let anyone look down on you because you're young, because Timothy got that description as in the only one in all of the people in the New Testament as the man of God. Flee from all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, spiritual discipline says that we don't turn our mind off, but we train it through humble obedience and, determine, and, and determination uh, to pursue God and, and the likeness of Christ as our end goal. So um, finally, Paul says, he uses this phrase, to run, the, run as to win the prize, um, and we're to run as if winning is everything. But it's not in the sense that you will find in any sports arena. We're called to run to win. And it only makes sense if you're chasing the right prize. So. There was. And there is. A world championship. T-Rex race. Have you ever heard of this? Little kids all dressed up, uh, up to a certain age, I forget what the age is, all dressed up in a T-Rex outfit. You know what a T-Rex is? It's a dinosaur. And they're all, they're all lined up in this huge race, the world championship. And these kids are stumbling and fumbling, sometimes falling, trying to run with this their face comes out right about the neck of the outfit. And then you have this big head 
dinosaur head on top that's flopping around and bobbling and and they can see out this window there and they're running and they're running uh, and in this YouTube video there was which we couldn't run today I wish we could but you can look it up there are two people noticeable in this race they aren't first they aren't up front they're not fast in fact after everybody else had crossed the line they were still about only halfway on the racetrack and these two were two four-year-old girls that were best friends they're one of them their dad was actually the organizer of the whole event and um, they were so excited when the race started you know when they we did the starter gun and everything took off, everyone took off. They were holding hands for the first little 10 yards or so, running together. And after everybody else had crossed the finish line, here they were still coming, still wobbling along. At four years old, these outfits were twice as big as them. They were monstrous and they're just struggling to try and stay and not fall and they're coming along but they stay with each other and they finally come and they get across the finish line and the dad says that his daughter at four years old they got across the finish line and she says dad we won we won more faith than anybody here more faith to be able to say, I'm willing to stand against a culture that wants to define me and define my success and define who I am and define my value and define how good I am at something. And God says, you've already won. You don't have to, you don't have to win in the world's eyes. You've already won. That wisdom from two four-year-old girls who were so excited because they won. And they did, right? We understand. The lesson of that is that we're called to live into the victory that Christ has already won for us. And to find joy in that. We won. May we be a people who are devoted to training ourselves spiritually to go against any definition of anything else except Christ. And we do that day by day, step by step. Let's close with that very song, Rich Mullins' song, Step by Step. Would you stand and we'll sing together. <laughs>